Today's broadcast was originally recorded on May 1st, 2023. I cannot emphasize enough, they will not win. This is the last last gasp of a movement that is dying. This is what fascism does when it is on its hind heels. It, it is always darkest before dawn. We are winning this thing. We are winning this thing. We'll see. I am from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 98.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WN. NHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KO, uh, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans. NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing. Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com, your guardians of democracy. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, Last week, by the way, uh, just after we got off air on Monday's show, uh, apparently I learned our our phones here at KPFK, our flagship station in Los Angeles, had been misrouted so that when you uh, when callers hit option number one to join us on air, callers were instead sent to our pledge drive room uh, as we were in the middle of a fun drive. That was not on purpose. My apologies for that. We had no idea until we got off the air. And apparently uh, it was chaos in the pledge room as a lot of folks wanted to get in uh, on the show with thoughts on uh, on the on the news that we were covering last Monday that the uh, multi-state conspiracy by MAGA right wingers to unlawfully breach voting systems software in a whole bunch of states after the 2020 presidential election, states like Georgia, Colorado, Michigan, Pennsylvania, elsewhere, it was actually a conspiracy that was hatched in Donald Trump's. Oval Office during that infamous crazy meeting of his uh, nutball attorneys like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and other folks like disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, a meeting in the Oval Office with Donald Trump present, leading 
Uh, to the question of whether Special Counsel Jack Smith would now finally be probing that disturbing part of Trump's efforts to steal the 2020 election. Well, uh, this week, the good news, I think the phones are now correctly routed, though the bad news, Desi Doyen, I don't know if we're going to have time for calls today. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is what it is, though. But if we do, if we can, once again, uh, we, they are. they should correctly get you through to us at 818-985-5735 if you want to jot it down right now. If you're listening live in our live Southern California listening area, 818-985-KPFK. But I need to start here. For the better part of last summer and into the fall, we warned you quite a bit on this program and at bradblog.com, repeatedly warned you about a Supreme Court case that is being heard this term named Moore v. Harper. As I threw out as many red flags as I could to get your attention about this particular case, uh, because depending on how the packed, corrupted, and stolen right-wing majority on the U.S. Supreme Court rules, this ruling could change American elections and election law as we have known it literally for hundreds of years in this country, since the beginning of the republic, in truth. In brief, uh, the Moore v. Harper case is a partisan gerrymandering case. Uh, Republican lawmakers in North Carolina were found to have created partisan gerrymanders for congressional and legislative maps in the evenly divided state that granted a huge political advantage to Republican lawmakers. The North Carolina State Supreme Court found the maps in that state to be in violation of the state constitution and its laws and ordered that fairer maps be drawn up uh, to use in the state. Now, normally that might be the end of the story, but Republican lawmakers in the Tar Hill state decided to make a federal case out of it, arguing that the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution gives all power regarding election laws and uh, laws to the state legislators, uh, give, gives that directly to laws, uh, I'm sorry, to, gives the, the, the power to create those laws to the state legislatures in each state. Something that apparently nobody noticed in the U.S. Constitution till just about now. Only state legislatures could make election laws, according to this fringe, sort of extremist theory of the U.S. Constitution. It's a constitutional theory that no U.S. Supreme Court majority has ever blessed up until now, but it is very much up for discussion right now in Moore v. Harper. If this so-called independent state legislature uh, or ISL theory is granted approval by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court majority, it could mean, as proponents of this theory argue, that all rules, all laws regarding elections may only be determined by state legislatures. Yes, many of them gerrymandered state legislatures. No election laws for federal elections can be determined by governors, by secretaries of state, not by state elections boards, not even by state constitutions or provisions adopted by voters and added to the Constitution, ultimately not even by the state supreme courts. Only state legislatures may decide all laws and rules regarding federal elections if the independent state legislative theory or ISL theory 
is approved by the U.S. Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper. Partisan legislatures would have complete and absolute say over any and all election laws, and that would include partisan legislatures that have, crea- that have created unlawful gerrymanders to keep themselves in power. It can't be that this is a legitimate theory, and yet this is the theory they are arguing. That was the Moore v. Harper case that I have been warning about, and it was the case that was heard at the high court late last year. Well, we now await the ruling from the Supreme Court on that case that could, in its maximalist interpretation, it could overturn hundreds of years of election law precedent in this country. It could unleash chaos before the 2024 presidential election. And yeah, it could even allow state legislatures to decide who will receive the state's electoral votes, no matter what the voters say. But a funny thing happened on the way to that SCOTUS decision in one of the most closely divided states in the union. It's a state, North Carolina, that Barack Obama narrowly won back in 2008 before narrowly losing there four years later. Donald Trump won the state with 49.9% of the state vote in 2016, even as Democratic uh, now governor Roy Cooper was elected as governor on the same statewide ballot. Cooper was then reelected in 2020, even as the state went for Donald Trump again that year. So it's a very closely divided state. But last November, the majority on the state's the state's Supreme Court ended up flipping from four to three Democratic majority to a five to two Republican majority. And with that new emboldened right wing majority, the state Supreme Court did what really no other high court in modern history uh, has done, at least to my knowledge. They decided to rehear the Moore v. Harper case that they had heard previously, even though essentially nothing had changed On the ground, no laws had changed other than the only thing that had changed was there was a new partisan Republican majority had taken control of the state's high court. And now, as the New York Times reported over the weekend, last year, Democratic justices on the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that maps of the state's legislative and congressional districts drawn to give Republicans lopsided majorities were illegal gerrymanders. Well, that was last year. That was a Democratic majority. On Friday, the very same court led by a newly elected Republican majority looked at the very same facts and reversed itself and said that it had no authority to act as it did when the previous Democratic majority did so in ordering new, fairer maps for the state of North Carolina. Now, the practical effect, according to the Times, is to enable the Republican-controlled General Assembly in the state to scrap the previous court-ordered state house, Senate, and congressional district boundaries that were used in elections last November, and to draw new maps skewed in Republicans' favor for elections in 2024. The 5-2 to ruling at the state Supreme Court fell along party lines, reflecting the takeover of the court by Republican justices in partisan elections last November. The decision has major implications, not just for the state legislature, where the GOP is barely clinging to a partisan gerrymandered supermajority, 
which makes its decisions veto-proof against the Democratic governor, but also for the U.S. House, where a new North Carolina map could add at least three Republican seats in 2024 to what is now a razor-thin Republican majority. Last November, under the new court-ordered maps, North Carolina elected seven congressional members from each party reflecting the closely divided nature of the state. Under the original maps drawn by the GOP legislature in 2021, which was later uh, ruled by the state Supremes to be an unlawful partisan gerrymander, under the map that they tried to draw, Republicans would have won 10 seats in the U.S. House to just four seats for Democrats. When the U.S. House maps were drawn by Republicans a decade earlier, back after the 2010 census, as the U.S. Supreme Court case called Rucho v. Common Cause revealed, well, the Republican chair of the state's redistricting committee, he was quoted as saying in response to the fact that while racial gerrymanders had been ruled unlawful by the U.S. Supreme Court, partisan gerrymanders had not been ruled unlawful. He said, quote, I propose that we draw the maps to give a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats because, he said, I do not believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. But he would have if he could have. They weren't even trying to hide it. Dissenting from Friday's ruling at the state Supreme Court, allowing the state to go back to those partisan gerrymandered maps, Justice Anita Earls wrote, quote, To be clear, this is not a situation in which a Democrat-controlled court preferred Democrat-leaning districts and a Republican-controlled court now prefers Republican-leaning districts. Here, she wrote, a Democratic-controlled court carried out its sworn duty to uphold the the state constitution's guarantee of free elections, fair to all voters of both parties. This decision, she notes, is now vacated by a Republican-controlled court seeking to ensure that extreme partisan gerrymanders favoring Republicans are established. Striking a hopeful note, Justice Earls added, quote, following decisions such as this, we must remember that though the path forward might seem long and unyielding, an injustice that is so glaring, so lawless, and such a betrayal to the democratic values upon which our Constitution is based will not stand forever. Well, we will see if she is right about that. She went on to conclude, Quote, I dissent from this court's majority opinion and its shameful manipulation of fundamental principles of our democracy and the rule of law. I look forward to the day when commitment to the constitutional principles of free elections and equal protection of the laws of the laws are upheld and the abuses committed by the majority are recognized for what they are, permanently relegating them to the annals of this court's darkest moments. I have no doubt that day will come again. I hope she's right. At the same time, on Friday, that new right-wing state Supreme Court in North Carolina also overturned two other rulings by the previous court. In the first, the justices reversed a ruling by the previous court, again along party lines, that a photo ID voting restriction law that was passed by the Republican majority in the legislature had violated the Equal Protection Clause in the state state constitution. Well, that was reversed by this new Republican majority. What changed between that decision and this one? Nothing. 
other than a Republican majority on the court. In the second uh, decision last Friday, the justices said a lower court had misapplied the law when it struck down a state law denying voting rights to people who had completed their prison sentences on felony charges but were not yet released from parole, probation, or other restrictions. The lower court had said that the law was rooted in an earlier law that was written to deny voting rights to African Americans. But the new ruling undid a decision that had restored voting rights to more than 55,000 North Carolinians who had completed prison sentences in a state where statewide elections are often decided by far less than 55,000 votes. Those rights for those former felons are now revoked, according to attorneys, although the status of former felons who had already registered or voted under the previous ruling, well, that now appears to be unclear. Chaos in North Carolina. And in the meantime, what does all of this mean for Moore v. Harper at the U.S. Supreme Court? Will it now be dismissed as moot, given the new rulings in the same case at the state level? Will the case be reheard in some fashion before the U.S. Supreme Court, or will SCOTUS go ahead and make their ruling anyway, given that there are a number of cases that right-wing legal groups have lined up for their friends at the high court in hopes of getting a favorable ruling to allow state legislatures to determine any and all election laws without the possibility of being overturned or checked by anyone, even state courts? And that would include, by the way, the ability for state legislatures to determine presidential electors for their states, even if the voters have decided they wanted a different set of presidential electors. Joining us now to make sense of this, and I wish him luck, is our old friend Dan Vicuña. He's the national redistricting manager for the nonprofit government watchdog group Common Cause, a plaintiff in the previous U.S. Supreme Court case regarding North Carolina redistricting known as Rucho v. Common Cause that resulted in the Supreme Court declaring that federal courts had no say whatsoever over partisan redistricting as a must be a matter left instead to the state Supreme Courts, which is now, it would seem, a matter that will be left to state legislatures instead, at least if all of this continues on the troubling track where it now appears to be headed. Dan Vicuña, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, it's always great to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, that intro included a whole lot of ideas and court cases that I believe all sort of work together to bring us to this mess that we're now in, Dan. Uh, Mm -hmm. Before we discuss where it all goes from here, did I get anything either terribly wrong in that summary or leave anything, uh, any crucial information out of it? Well, I think, you know, you covered North Carolina pretty well. Um, I I would say just as a, a way of you know, giving the listeners a little hope, you know, we are, it's a mixed bag out there when it comes to state courts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, although North Carolina didn't go our way once the courts switched into Republican hands, we did see just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, you know, Republican led state Supreme Court in Alaska say that partisan gerrymandering mm-hmm. violates equal protection. Mm-hmm. We saw state courts in other states, uh, the highest court in New York, strike maps down in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, Maryland, uh, the, a, a lower trial court in Maryland strike strike it down under the state um, state constitution, strike maps down. So, um, you know, we're going to have to see what happens, how things play out in Morby Harper. But we do know that 
other state courts are are starting to get why this is a problem and why they have to get act. Well, you know, they may start getting it, but it, depending on what the Supreme Court decides, it may not matter what the state courts believe. Am I right? Just going back for a moment, just to North Carolina, am I right that none of the facts actually changed on the ground or in the law uh, that would lead this new Republican majority high court in North Carolina to rehear these cases, other than the fact that Republicans won back the majority last November? Am I right about that? And B, that nobody has really ever seen such a blatant move by a state Supreme Court to simply rehear a case in order to overturn it just months after it was previously decided. No, I mean, this, you're right. This this was uh, just bare knuckle partisan politics. Um, it just so happens they, they, they happen to wear robes, but um, <laughs> it was partisan politics. The, the 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 court, uh, you know, a Democratic majority um, laid out a very clear case as to why the, the maps were unfair. And, uh, you know, as you quoted Justice Earl stating that, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't seek to then throw the drawing of the maps um, to Democratic operatives. They mm-hmm. sought a nonpartisan redraw and it resulted in a split uh, split congressional delegation, mm-hmm. that just like the state. So, yep. um, yeah, no, our, our attorneys in this case have been. Uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice. They're based in North Carolina. They've been litigating civil rights, voting rights cases for a long time. And they said they've just never seen anything that was uh, such a quick reversal uh, based uh, blatantly on partisan politics. You know, and it seems like it seems so obvious where, you know, fair maps result in a 7-7 partisan split in the in the U.S. House delegation. Unfair maps end up with a 10 to 4 Republican majority uh, in the House delegation. It seems clear that something is wildly amiss. But is there I mean, what, if anything, before we get to the U.S. Supreme Court, is there any next steps for North Carolina Democrats or voting rights advocates in the state like Common Cause? Or are voters at this point just stuck with these unfair maps now for the next 10 years, Dan? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's a rough place to be um, for, you know, sort of dem- Democrats or just broadly, uh, you know, voters who want to see their votes um, count mm-hmm. um, and actually be able to. Uh, hold elected officials accountable. Um, you know, I think they are going to have to look to the elected, you know, sort of the voting process, you know, at the margins, right? Mm-hmm. The, the North Carolina Republicans have kind of a slim supermajority. Um, you know, I think it's clearer now to um, North Carolinians that um, uh, judicial elections matter. Um, you know, we, we see in Wisconsin is a, is a mm-hmm. sort of a reverse situation where um, progressives won a majority of the court there uh, in an election that recently happened a few months ago, um, and the the can the progressive candidate who won has stated very clearly that she wants to enforce the Wisconsin Constitution to defend voters from partisan gerrymanders. So I think that advocates in the state there will take a very close look at whether uh, it's going to be time to, you know, to ensure voting rights by by going back to the court um, when she takes office. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that's how things are. Things are uh, go all, going different directions in different parts of the country. Is is the lesson at the state level for the moment anyway that if you happen to own the majority in a redistricting year, uh, you know, after a new census every ten years, that you can simply gerrymander any way that you like to retain control, no matter how voters might otherwise vote in a, you know, in a fair election on fair maps. It seems like all of the guardrails at this point are gone, including the guardrails at the state level, if a partisan state Supreme Court decides they want to do away with them. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely leads to some um, some very depressing conclusions. But, you know, I think 
you know, we're going to have to see how states can react to whatever comes out of the Supreme Court, um, uh, the Morby Harper decision, right? We, mm-hmm. we, what we do know is that the justices did seem fairly skeptical about the most extreme interpretation of the independent state legislature doctrine that, um, you know, gives state legislators total control mm-hmm. um, over election rules for, for, for federal elections. Uh, but um, you know, is there some kind of in-between ground that may lead, put states in a more difficult position? I think we're going to have to wait and see, you know, and that may get, set, a, set a map for how they're supposed to respond. But maybe mm-hmm. that's by uh, establishing clearer rules that more explicitly state that partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution or, or other more specific protections that are enumerated more clearly. So, you know, we're going to have to wait and see in, in the next like month or two. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, I feel like in, in that particular case, in Moore v. Harper, that if they find some sort of a middle ground, really what it is, is, uh, you know, a first step on the path to the ground that I've been, uh, you know, that I had my hair on fire about uh, earlier in this show and uh, over the past year, that that seems to be where they're heading with this particular court. So in one sense, I guess, you know, the biggest question at the moment is, does the court still even release a ruling on this case, given that the facts on the ground have already been reversed? I mean, do they rule it uh, to be a moot case and kick the can down the road for another day? Or are they actually going to put out a ruling anyway, even though the the case itself they were ruling on has already changed. Yeah, it's hard to say because I, I mean I, I think there are some facts that suggest that they will issue a ruling because they're um, you know they already have in the pipeline and are deciding whether to accept for for hearing grant cert as they say in kind of mm-hmm. Supreme Court parlance um, on a case out of Ohio, which is essentially um, the same legal theory, right? Ohio legislators. Um, there's a Ohio has a politician commission, right? Not like the kind of gold standard uh, independent uh, nonpartisan commissions that you see in some states like mm-hmm. California, Michigan, mm-hmm. Colorado. Um, it has a politician led commission mm-hmm. and it kept um, drawing partisan gerrymanders in, in direct violation of uh, ballot measure that voters approved um, 2015 and 2018. And the state state Supreme Court kept sending it back demanding a redraw and eventually they ran out the clock and now they're you know and, and got some barely manipulated maps uh, but that was enough for them they went to the u.s supreme court and are asking for the same mm-hmm. sort of total control over the redistricting process mm-hmm. so you know that the, the supreme court has that case in the pipeline if they decide to to hear it i mean they're going to have to address this issue anyway so i think it's possible that they may decide to just issue a ruling uh, regardless because if i if i'm if i'm getting the math right dan vicuña that would mean if they don't issue a ruling here in the more v harper and they sort of kick it down uh down the road to the next term the, the ohio case you're talking about or any of the other ones that that could come up in that case if they do that their ruling would then come out smack dab in the middle of the 2024 election next, uh, not this June, but next June, uh, when that could be quite a a bomb to drop in in the middle of a presidential election. Yeah, it's true. And that may be something they want to avoid. You know, we we didn't want this case to be heard in the first place because the independent state legislature theory is, quite frankly, ridiculous. It defies logic, defies legal precedent, defies the intent of the framers of the Constitution. Uh, But it was heard. We mm-hmm. made our case. Uh, we think we won very clearly um, on the law, on the facts, and the history. And so I think probably getting clarity on this uh, well in advance of the 2024 elections makes a lot of sense. So 
um, you know, we're, we're okay with that and hoping that it goes our way. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping so too, because I uh, foresee chaos if it, if it doesn't. I, I foresee chaos. And, and again, maybe I'm a worry wart. You're not, I hope. Uh, and, and maybe you're, you're right on this, but I'm worried that even a, uh, you know, a middle ground decision ends up unleashing chaos uh, by the time we get to uh, 2024. Uh, Dan, as, as North Carolina Justice Anita Earls said in her dissent, this is not a matter of Democrats trying to get a partisan advantage. This is a matter of Democrats uh, fighting for a fair fight for all voters, really small D Democrats. And she thinks that Friday's ruling will not be the last one in the matter. Uh, as she said, there will be, quote, a day when commitment to the constitutional principles of free elections and equal protection of the laws are upheld and the abuses committed by the majority are recognized for what they are, permanent, uh, permanently relegating them to the annals of this court's darkest moments. Do you share her optimism there, no matter how long it might take us to get there in North Carolina and other states? Well, I, I think that the just the the blatant um, hypocrisy, the, the clear partisanship, it, it, it's it's laid so bare. Um, it's hard to see how this how a decision like this stands. Um, so I, you know, I do. I, that's why we that's why we keep at it. OK, you're much more sanguine than I am, Dan Vicuña. And I, like I said, I really hope you're right and I am terribly wrong because uh, I, I continue to be terribly worried. And, I, of course, I'm just worried about voters alone in, in North Carolina alone, uh, which are who, who are being undermined every which way. Again, not a partisan issue, just, you know, a democracy issue as far as I'm yeah. concerned, in, uh, in North Carolina. Dan Vicuña uh, is the National Redistricting Manager for Common Cause. They have been putting up the very good fight on this matter in North Carolina and elsewhere for many years. You can find more about their work, their critical work on this, at commoncause.org slash redistricting. You can follow them on Twitter at Common Cause, and you can uh, follow Dan there as well at Dan Vicuña. Hey, Dan, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, sort of looking forward to speaking about this with you in the future. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll have some good news. There you go. We'll that see. would, that so would be nice. Thanks, Dan. All, All right. right. We're going to uh, take a quick break here and we will, um, when we return, we will have, I hate to say this, Desi Doyen, but uh, more yes. dis more disturbing news about the Supreme Court. I know. Court. Maybe we should keep Dan around and just keep up the, <laughs> you know, uh, the optimism. Anyway, uh, this is uh, some more disturbing news out of the U.S. Supreme Court just announced today that could also s uh, serve to overturn decades of court precedent and federal law. So sorry about that. I don't invent the day's news. I just try to keep up with it and cover it as best I can so you can understand it. Desi Doyen will also be here to help us out uh, for this uh, next heavy Supreme Court lift today and what may be the end of the so-called Chevron Doctrine. Chevron Doctrine. There we go. I'll explain all of that right after this and maybe some of your calls if you'd like to ring in 818-985-5735. I'm Brad Friedman and you are listening to the world famous Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely 
independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Ain't we though? Walking on broken glass. Right here with you on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, more disturbing news, as promised, from our corrupted and stolen and packed far-right U.S. Supreme Court majority on Monday, for which I'm, I'm going to need to lean in a moment on our uh, own very wise Desi Doyen from some help here. So <laughs> yes. no, no pressure, Des. But <laughs> let me start here with the first CNN. The Supreme Court agreed Monday. To reconsider long-held precedent, that's never a good sign for this corrupted court, uh, to decide whether to significantly scale back on the power of federal agencies in a case that could impact everything from how the government addresses everything from climate change to public health to immigration and much more, according to CNN. Our uh, far-right activist justices on the high court have long sought to rein in regulatory authority of executive federal agencies, arguing that Washington has just too much control over American businesses and individual lives. As you have likely noticed in recent years, those justices have been incrementally diminishing federal power, the power of federal agencies to make rules and regulations based on laws that are passed by Congress. But this new case that they decided on Monday to take up would allow them to take a much broader stride against federal regulatory power across the board. The justices announced they would take up an appeal this is from a uh, from a from herring fishermen in the Atlantic who say that the National Marine Fisheries Service, an executive federal agency that carries out laws adopted by Congress, uh, does not have the authority to require them to pay the salaries of government monitors who ride aboard these fishing vessels in order to assure that these fishermen are following federal regulations. That means, and this has been a long time coming since. Industry groups have been trying to get exactly this. It means that the court will reconsider a 1984 case called Chevron v. NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, that uh, sets forward factors to determine when courts should defer to a government agency's interpretation of the law, specifically the experts on the subject matter at that government agency, and when instead they should defer to industry challengers and let the court decide how they feel about it instead of allowing the experts at the federal agency to decide. Industry lobbyists and right-wingers who support them on the high court have long been skeptical of the so-called Chevron deference, arguing that experts at uh, federal agencies are often too insulated from the usual checks and balances essential to the separations of powers, that instead it should be the lobbyists that we should rely on. And the courts and the judges, they know better than the experts at the federal agencies. 
The Chevron Doctrine sets forward factors to determine when courts defer to an agency's interpretation of a statute. So, for example, when courts are reviewing an agency action, a rule or a regulation, they must first consider whether the law, as written and passed by Congress, is ambiguous. If it's not ambiguous, then that's it. That's that. If, however, the language is not clear, then a court considers whether the agency action is a reasonable interpretation of the law. Now, Republicans have expressed criticism of the doctrine, arguing that courts should not defer to these federal agencies, you know, where the experts work. Instead, they should listen to, you know, the industry lobbyists. That essentially, if Congress does not specifically mandate each and everything, each and every regulation, well, then it cannot be enforced. That's what the Republicans are now trying to do at the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, yeah, well, let's let's hear that case, a case that could overturn decades, even centuries of executive agency rulemaking procedures. Steve Vladek, the uh, uh, Supreme Court analyst and professor at the University of Texas Law School, uh, Texas School of Law, uh, told CNN, quote, the idea that agencies should be allowed to resolve ambiguities in statutes that they enforce has been a central feature of modern administrative law. If it's up to the courts rather than the agencies, he explained, to resolve ambiguities, even in statutes delegating highly technical authority to the executive branch, well, that will give the courts more power and the executive branch less power on everything from environmental regulations to immigration to public health to meat inspections to telecommunications policy. In other words, if the Congress didn't specifically say what the temperature of the meat must be stored at, well, then the uh, USDA can't come in there and, and, and be telling uh, meat packers what the temperature should be. In that respect, Vladek notes it's consistent with the current conservative majority's pattern of weakening the so-called administrative state in favor of judicial power to answer all of these questions. So in other words, just as Steve Bannon has long called for, deconstructing the administrative state, that is what this is about. That is what the Supreme Court has just decided they're going to take a look at. Of course, you know, first you pack the courts with right-wingers, and then you dismantle the power of federal agencies by taking away deference to experts at those agencies and hand it to those packed right-wing courts. If Congress didn't specifically mention any particular thing in their law as written, well, let's leave it up to some activist judge, like, for example, I don't know, the Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek down in Texas, Let's leave it to him to single-handedly decide the nation's most popular form of abortion, the Mifepristone pill. Well, let's let him decide that that was not approved and authorized safely by the experts at the FDA 23 years ago. And he alone, this federal judge, an anti-abortion activist federal judge with zero medical expertise, let's, le let's leave it to him. He has the power to deauthorize the use of this pill in all 50 states. Never mind what the experts at the federal agency have to say about it. 
a separate case already on the justice's calendar that uh, relatedly offers the opportunity to rein in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's the only federal agency that actually looks out for consumers overseeing practices related to mortgages, car loans and credit cards. That will also be heard by the justices and also bring into doubt the Chevron deference. So uh, this is where I want to turn to Desi Doyen, our producer and the uh, managing editor of our twice-weekly Green News Report. Hi, yes. Des. Hi. Um, I, I want to talk about the original Chevron deference ruling and the effect that overturning that will now most likely have, if in fact the court does it, on our environment, on our worsening climate crisis, and on federal agencies like the EPA and their ability to make rules to do things like limit pollution from carbon dioxide and methane uh, greenhouse gases that are uh, causing our climate crisis. Last week uh, on, on your Green News report, you covered the, uh, the new landmark initiative by President Biden's EPA to limit carbon dioxide released from coal-fired power plants. Uh, that essentially is, you know, one of the rules that would be overturned, I guess, by courts if they are not required to give general deference to experts at federal agencies. Am I correct? Right. That is exactly what it could possibly do. It basically says, as you have mentioned, that if Congress does not explicitly spell out in black and white ink exactly what an agency can regulate, what is included in those regulations, sometimes even down to the parts per million in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. then judge can substitute their own ideas for what they think is appropriate for curtailing air pollution, for example, Mm -hmm. if they overturn the Chevron doctrine. And it makes sense, by the way, that, uh, you know, if the law is ambiguous, they can't decide, uh, you know, what Congress actually meant by this law Well, it's not necessarily even what Congress actually meant. Let's just say Congress says the Clean Air Act must protect public health from air pollution. Right. Of course, it's a little more detailed than that. But as new pollutants enter into into the atmosphere, as we invent new things that create new types of pollution, mm-hmm. the EPA scientists would then say, hey, we have noticed that this thing kills people. Let's maybe re- reduce the uh, emissions of that thing. No, no, no. Not without, a, not without a brand new law in Congress, apparently. That explicitly spells out exactly what those things are. Right. So that is how the Chevron doctrine is supposed to help agencies basically do the work that they need to do, especially when it's highly technical, highly scientific types of actions that need to be undertaken that Congress doesn't have the expertise for either. So it basically puts the agencies in charge, the agency expertise in charge. Now, the interesting thing about the Chevron doctrine is that it cuts both ways. So the she- the original uh, the original ruling that mm-hmm. this came for came through the Chevron versus NRDC. That mm-hmm. was that 1984 decision that requires courts. It sets a legal test that requires courts to defer to federal agencies when laws passed by Congress don't spell these things out. So back in 1977, the U.S. Congress amended the Clean Air Act of 1963. Mm-hmm. The amendment required all companies that were planning to build or install any major source of air pollutants, any new, say you've got a coal plant and you want to add a new coal unit on it back back in 1977, mm-hmm. this amendment said, hey, your new equipment that you're adding, your new installation has to pass a new environmental review so we can measure the pollution from it and make sure that we know what the impacts are mm-hmm. and rein those impacts in if they hurt public health. But because Congress didn't explicitly define 
back in 1977, <laughs> what a, constituted a source of air pollutants, the um, Reagan EPA, the Reagan Administration Environmental Protection Agency, then headed by Director Ann Gorsuch, mother of ah. Justice Neil Gorsuch. Ah. So, Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. So she adopted a new definition that allowed all existing plants to completely sidestep that regulation. Ah, the oh, new nice. standards. She said, hey, listen, you know, if you install this one little piece, we won't count that one little mm-hmm. extra coal plant unit you've added. We'll just, you know, measure your entire facility. And if it doesn't go over the limit with the entire facility, then you're OK. And this was at a time when supposedly she, uh, Neil Justice Neil Gorsuch's mother, she, in that case, she is supposed to be the expert, right, right. at the EPA. And we're the supposed to. The Supreme Court during the Reagan administration said, yes, you know what, we believe you should follow uh... what the Reagan EPA EPA says because uh, they're these the experts and you should defer to them as long as the EPA is being run by Republicans we should refer to the uh, to the experts but now that Biden's in charge of the EPA that's right out we've Correct. got to do something about this Chevron that's what doctrine. people don't know necessarily about yeah. the Chevron doctrine yeah. NRDC lost that case Chevron won that case yeah. so this is yes as you said it's big business <laughs> that has been pushing this case and these yep. kinds of cases for years now to try to give the court right-wing supermajority the opportunity to strike down that Chevron doctrine that since then has been used in many ways to help ensure pollution rules stay in place because they do protect against public to they do protect public yeah. health against these pollutants that come out from both Clean Air and the Clean Water Act so it's actually a vehicle by major business groups um, that is in a part of that long-standing goal to dismantle the regulatory state yeah. I mean you've got big business behind it that's the Cato Institute, the yep. Competitive Enterprise Institute, the National Right to Work Organization, the Christian Employers Alliance. Mm. All of these mm-hmm. groups uh, had also put amicus briefs to the court saying, yeah, you know, you really should get rid of this uh, this deference to these silly agency scientists. Yeah, what, what do, do they, they know? know? Yeah. So and, it, and it's all over the place, by the way. It's federal agencies. It's the Veterans Administration deciding what sort of health care that veterans can have. Don't yeah. leave that up to them. If Congress didn't say it specifically, well, then let's fight it out in the courts and let's let a judge decide as opposed to the medical experts at the VA. Yeah, big business has been really targeting all regulatory agencies since um, the the New Deal basically curtailed yep. the power of big business to do whatever it wanted. And that's when Congress created so many of these uh, regulatory agencies and directed them to issue these very technical rules to address these problems. So overturning it, as you mentioned, could have some really far-reaching re- implications for how America imposes rules on businesses, especially heavily polluting industries. And that's, I think, where this was really, really focused on on trying to make this, this particular case come across. So one thing that's important to know about this is that Justice Katanji Brown Jackson has been recused from this case. She recused herself because she was still on the D.C. appeals court when it heard oral arguments in this case. In the original case. In the original case. She did not rule on this case, but she was still there for oral (laughs) arguments. So she's recused himself. So she's doing the right thing. Yeah. Even though we have Clarence Thomas, who for uh, how many years, uh, 30-something years now, has been doing the wrong thing year after year after year, has yep. been taking money from, uh, you know, GOP mega donors whose cases are before the court, GOP mega donors who are buying his mother's house that she literally now lives in, is owned by Harlan Crow, one of the biggest uh, GOP mega donors. 
he's doing the wrong thing, Clarence Thomas. Right. The right-wingers, Neil Gorsuch, didn't disclose that uh, uh, one of the, the, the chief of uh, one of the top law firms that argue before the Supreme Court actually bought a property of Neil Gorsuch's. Right. He never disclosed that. They sit on all of these cases, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson says, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to step down from this particular case. As she should, because she that should. would be yeah. the right thing exactly. to do. So the, the thing about this is that there have been so what's really notable what really strikes me about this is yeah. that there have been several cases that have been brought to the US Supreme Court that could have been the vehicle to overturn the Chevron doctrine however the conservative justices waited for a ruling i mean a case where they knew yeah. Jackson was not going to be able to be part of it. Uh, so putting the the, the, the number of eight judges yeah. on that, eight justices there. So yep. knowing that, they chose this particular one, knowing that it would effectively um, take her out and whatever strong voice she might add to the, hey, no, don't, don't get rid of the Chevron doctrine. I mean, if this is overturned, and, as you said— yeah. Judges can disregard agency science and expertise. They can substitute their own beliefs. And it is widely believed that business and industry will be way more likely to win in court if this goes through and, when they challenge agency rulings. And, you know, and, you know, we talk about these cases and I, I try to set off a, a, an alarm, a siren here that the Supreme Court is is picking up cases like this, picking up cases like Moore v. Harper. And, you know, I go on air and I tell you about all of the. Uh, I don't even extraordinary decades, centuries of precedent that could be overturned. I am not trying to do it to alarm you. I'm not like one of the I'm not like the folks on the right. Uh, you know, their radio shows where the idea is just to scare the crap out of you day after day after day. I'm telling you this stuff because, well, remember when we were warning about Roe v. Wade potentially being overturned? And a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 we've been hearing that for years. This court, this corrupted court, this packed and stolen court is willing to do pretty much anything and everything because they are nothing but partisan corrupted partisan right-wing hacks, period. And yes, they are willing to overturn 50 years of constitutionally established freedoms when it comes to abortion. Yes, they are willing to hand power to state legislatures, as I discussed in the previous segment with Dan Vicuña, to, to hand the power to the state legislatures to come up with any, you know, federal election laws that they like with no checks or balances. Governor's veto? Forget about it. State Supreme Court? Never mind. State uh, Constitution? Who cares? Uh, 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 an amendment to that constitution that voters have actually voted on in that state? Never mind. Nothing matters. Only the state legislature matters. They can make up any rule they want, no matter how gerrymandered they are. And now, in this case, well, the Chevron Doctrine, allowing experts at federal agencies to be the final word when there's an ambiguously worded law, that could be overturned as well. So I'm not doing this, uh, you know, just because I want to scare the hell out of my listeners. I'm doing it because, frankly, I feel like I need to scare the hell out of my listeners so we all pay attention to what is going on here. And when we get to an election next year and the question is, well, what do we care? Both parties, they're both the same. No, they are very much not the same. 
And if you haven't noticed that by now, if you haven't noticed that after four years of Donald Trump packing and stealing this court, putting on uh, a, a justice on the Supreme Court eight days before Election Day in 2020, after refusing for an entire year to fill the vacancy left by uh, Justice uh, Anton Scalia, claiming that, oh, he died in February. That's too close to the November election that year to replace him. But uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she dies just days before the 2020 election. Oh, sure. Let's 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 pack someone on the courts. Because God forbid Donald Trump doesn't win and Joe Biden will be able to make that selection instead. Unbelievable. Uh, all right. A couple more uh, points here. And, and if we have any uh, anybody who wants to jump in, 818-985-KPFK. I don't know if we'll have time or not, but I, I just want to throw out a couple of other points here uh, that I've been uh, we've been talking about on this show. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that uh, Democratic Senator, California Senator Dianne Feinstein is still somewhere up in San Francisco, sick with shingles and unable to return to Washington, despite how closely divided our U.S. Senate is with a uh, the barest of majorities for, uh, for Democrats up there. Well, last week, the U.S. Senate, by a vote of 50 to 49, passed a resolution that essentially overturns a trucking emissions Regulation that was issued by the, uh, the by the Biden administration. administration. Yes. So uh, it was supposed to yeah. rein in heavy duty truck pollution, like yep. from garbage trucks, school buses, big eighteen wheelers, mm-hmm. all of that. So it was the first ever to actually restrain the the emissions, the toxic, polluting, deadly emissions from these heavy duty trucks. A great uh, regulation yeah. put in place, but guess what? Senator Joe Manchin, uh, the coal baron. From uh, from West Virginia, uh, he joined the Republicans and he voted in favor of overturning this regulation. And Senator Feinstein did not vote because she was not there. So by a vote of 50 to 49, it was overruled. Had Feinstein been there, she would have voted in favor of it. It would have been 50 50. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris would have made, been the uh, uh, deciding vote and it would have not been overturned. Congressman uh, Ro Khanna, from, uh, Democrat from California, tweeted, quote, because Senator Feinstein was absent, the Senate overturned a Biden rule that would cut pollution from heavy-duty trucks and causes harm to people's lungs. We are putting decorum over democracy and our values. It's time for Senator Feinstein to step down gracefully, he notes. Uh, let me hit some uh, email here and maybe a time for a call or two from our friend Don S., who writes, uh, subject, crime against humanity. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now setting up tax incentives to encourage people to buy, to encourage them to buy gas appliances. Given the global warming crisis, writes Don, I think this should be charged as a crime against humanity. Not only is this a stupid idea, he writes, but it's actively working against what the world needs most. Still loving your show, writes Don. Never miss an episode. I get the podcast and listen in bed at night. Don asks, well, thank you for the thoughts and the kind words, Don, uh, in your note to bradcast at bradblog.com, though I can't imagine listening to this show just before bed is a good idea idea for anyone (laughs) 
who hopes to get a good night's sleep. Des, I know you had a less snarky response to Don's concerns there specifically. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think that uh, there uh, it's not actually no out of nowhere. There was a new academic analysis that was accepted for publish, publication by the Harvard Ar- Environmental Law Review that actually calls for charging big oil companies with homicide mm. for, quote, killing members of the public at an accelerating rate. That's because um, air pollution from uh, fossil fuels kills about seven to eight million million people a year globally. So there is some there's some basis for that, uh, that mm-hmm. these people are positing. Let me get to a quick call here. Uh, Davin? Dave, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, Davin, let's go with that, in Venice, uh, California. Hey, Davin, how, how are you? Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, I'm very fine, Brad. Uh, I just wanted to ask, why is the Supreme Court exempt from all the other uh, the federal... Uh, rules mm-hmm. that uh, all uh, sitting federal judges, why are they exempt? How, where does that come from? You know, I, the best explanation I've ever been able to get, because I keep talking to uh, people and asking that exact same question, the, the and, and it's, it seems like a ridiculous answer, but the answer appears to be that they are too good for those regulations, that to question them in any way, to require them to, you know, uh, recuse for certain things that everyone else on the court would have to do, that that somehow puts into question the uh, noble uh, awesomeness of uh, Supreme Court justices. I mean, it's a ridiculous answer, but that's the best answer that I've been able to get. Yeah, the justices do not have to follow the same uh, guidelines that everyone else on the federal bench has to has to cover. It's insane. Yeah, what, what, are they up on a cloud somewhere, untouchable, or what's going on there? <laughs> well, they're not, actually, they're not untouchable. There have been laws that have been, uh, you know, required after uh, Watergate, for example, if they uh, receive more than $1,000 uh, from a property sale, they must disclose that. So you can make laws. There's nothing that prevents Congress from making laws regulating the Supreme Court. Um, they just don't tend to do it. It's, Yeah. It's it's insane. I got to get out, David. Thank you very much for that call. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I, I missed what he said, but uh, drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. My thanks to our guest today, Dan Vicuña of Common Cause. Of course, to our excellent producer, Desi Doyen. To our very fine board operator, Wendell Handy. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, made possible by those of you who support our work. Thank you for that. You can, as I said, drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. Hope you'll follow me there. I will see you at all of the above. Until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.